We are in Matthew chapter 28 this morning. For a while now, we've been talking a little bit about uh, where we might be going after the Gospel of Matthew, and I've been talking about the book of Daniel. And as I was uh, studying yesterday and, you know, was talking about uh, yesterday, we had a board meeting yesterday for the church, we have one every month, and we were just talking through that, it just, you know, one thing the Lord's been putting on my heart to, to do for us as a church is to talk about the church as a whole, the church, the church capital C, what Bible colleges and seminaries call ecclesiology, which is just the study of the church. Um, and I think it's something that's missing in our culture. It's missing in the understanding of the church at large. You know, who and what is the church and what is the purpose of the church? What is the mission of the church? Um, I think what's, you know, one of the many things that's happened through covid has been, in many people's minds, church has gotten redefined. In many respects, people have looked at church as optional. To, to God, church is the gathering of the called out ones. It's those who have been saved. And he desires that his people gather together in groups to worship him and to receive mutual encouragement and fellowship. You know, we title our a monthly potluck fellowships are Acts, Acts 2.42 potluck fellowship. If you go and read Acts 2.42, it talks about how in the days of the early church, the disciples were meeting to dedicate themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, meaning most likely not just a meal, but also celebrating the Lord's table and prayer. And so I think with you know, as COVID has, you know, swept through in 2020 and 2021, and, you know, we have, we all had online church before, and we, you know, I think all of us who were doing that beforehand, I've talked to, like, dozens of my pastor friends, and this is a very common topic among all of us, is that we, we primarily were broadcasting online prior to the pandemic as a means of outreach, as a means of just being out there because sometimes people are, you know, they're looking for a new church and they may feel a little pensive about walking in cold turkey, so they like to maybe watch it online. Um, you know, for those who maybe are sick, uh, you know, can't be with us or they're away on vacation or traveling, you know, just to provide that, that incredible opportunity that technology affords us to do these days. But as we went through the last two years, I think it kind of, you know, you know, we could, you know, in the beginning we couldn't meet, you know, people had, there was restrictions and all that kind of stuff till we all figured out what was happening. It was kind of a control thing and keeping, you know, I think it was ultimately in some respects, not just a health concern, but I think it was a ploy of Satan to keep the church from meeting. And I think we have ended up redefining, you know, church as something that's, it's an optional thing on our calendar. And it's my personal conviction from scripture, not a legalistic view, but that we should be meeting as often as we possibly can because we need to meet with other believers. We need to be encouraged. We need to draw near to God together. We need to worship together. We need to hear other voices praising God. When we come in and maybe we're, we're down and, you know, and we just don't feel like we have the strength or the breath to praise, but we're hearing other people praise, it lifts us up and encourages us. And the church is supposed to be that place where we find that mutual encouragement and support. If anything, the church should be the social group of the community, not social media, not online stuff that is really a virtual reality that draws us in. And so I believe the Lord wants us to think about church and to reset according to the word of God what church is. And for that reason, uh, I'd been thinking in our next few sequences of where we're going to study of the book of Acts, and I, I just felt like last night as I was studying and praying that the Lord is saying, from Matthew, we're going to go to Acts. And so starting next week, that's where we're going to be. And we're going to study church, essential church. What is it? And we're going to see how God defined it from the beginning. So I'm excited about that, and then after that, I think it makes sense to go to Daniel. I'm excited about Daniel. I've already been looking at it a little bit. And then from Daniel, I mentioned, I think want to go right into Revelation, because Daniel and Revelation just line up. So that's, that's like the next two years easy for us. 
So it just gives you a little preview. So, uh, you know, you have a Bible. Begin reading this week in the book of Acts. Let's see what the Lord does. All right. I'm going to do something a little bit unusual this morning that we used to do back several years ago. I want to have you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Acts chapter 28. It'll be up here on the screen if you need it. uh, But I hope you have your Bible and you'll be reading it together with us out of your own Bible. Acts chapter 28. The Word of God reads as follows. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice, And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them, Uh, His disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So when, excuse me, so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Lord, may you add your blessing to the reading of your word. And we remind ourselves, this is the word of the Lord to us today, your church. Thank you for giving it to us. And as we go through it together, as always, we ask that you would be our teacher, that we would hear your voice speaking to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Just to remind you this morning, there are four gospels. There are four gospel accounts of the resurrection. And the Gospels, uh, just to refresh your memory, you know, a lot of people like to see the differences as contradictions and as a way to attack the integrity and the veracity of the Scriptures. The Gospels, I I like to look at as, uh, imagine yourselves, uh, you know, know, we're four different people or four groups of people standing on the four corners of an intersection, and we all witness an, uh, an accident. But we all had a different perspective, and so The truth can be found not by talking to one group, but by talking to all four and getting the full perspective. And I think that's what the gospel writers very much are like to us and why the Holy Spirit allowed the the four gospel writers to bring their own unique perspective to uh, our understanding. And it's fun to do that. It's fun to to look at that. In fact, you know, we're just a few months, a couple of months away and uh, the middle of April, the second and third week of April will be uh, Palm Sunday and uh, that'll be a Holy Week and Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. So we'll be coming back to this topic uh, in just a, a couple of months. So today we're pretty much going to stick with Matthew's account. So here in verse 1, you know, remember we finished last week with Jesus being laid in the tomb at the end of that day of his crucifixion. And we pick it up in verse 1 here in Matthew's account. Now after the Sabbath... 
Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So remember the Sabbath was Saturday and the Jews reckoned their day from sundown to sundown or basically from, if you'd like to think of it this way, from about 6 p.m. to about 6 p.m. So at um, 6 p.m. Friday, the Sabbath began and at 6 p.m. Saturday, the Sabbath ended. So it says after the Sabbath, so this would have been after sundown or roughly 6 p.m. on Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and the other Gospels tell us that there were some other people in that entourage. Now, most believe the other Mary uh, here that um, Matthew is referring to was Mary of Bethany. When you read through the Marys, there's like four or five Marys. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary of Bethany, um, Mary of Magdala. um, Yeah, so there's a number of them there, and so often they are identified for us. Uh, Here, so we believe it's Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany, and this was, of course, the Mary who was Martha's sister who, you know, sat at the feet of Jesus. So these two ladies run to the tomb, and the other gospel accounts do give us the picture, the understanding that uh, on that day when they took Jesus off of the cross, that they were sort of rushing to get him into the tomb and close the tomb because uh, the the Uh, evening was coming and the next day was dawning so to speak upon them and so they had to do that quickly which means they did not have time to properly prepare his body for burial so they were back now after the sabbath because it was a sabbath uh, feast remember they were there for the feast of passover and that began the previous sunday as they were choosing the passover lamb and Jesus rode in on what we know as the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, and he went through that whole week teaching there in the temple and teaching his disciples, and then led into the time of the upper room with his disciples, and then out to Gethsemane, and then of course came and was arrested and then crucified. And so now on the dawn of the first day of the week, these two ladies go out and others to prepare the body of Jesus. And of course, they were nervous. They knew that there was a stone rolled in front of the tomb, and this stone was at least two tons. To remind you, that's 4,000 pounds. It's a big stone. And as this stone was rolled in front of the tomb, but they came to, out of respect and love for their Lord to prepare his body for burial, because of course, a body can decay very quickly when you know there's no embalming or no care as we do today in our world, they went there with the understanding, with the belief that Jesus was dead and that he was in the tomb. All the disciples believe that. So as they went, uh, they get there and they meet an angel of the Lord. But before I get to that, I want to remind you that Jesus had spoken to them a number of times. And just from within Matthew's account, I have four times here that I count that Jesus spoke to them and said, hey, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be given over to the chief priests. And in Matthew chapter 16, um, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. In chapter 17, he said a similar thing. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. Matthew chapter 20, again, a similar thing. He said to them that he would be delivered over, and he says, I will be delivered to the Gentiles to be mocked and to be scourged and to be crucified, and then the third day I will rise again. Matthew 26, which we covered just a couple of weeks ago, uh, as Peter was confessing, you know, Lord, even if, if all of our brothers here deny you and desert you, I never will. And of course, Jesus in that passage warned him that he would deny him. And he said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. He said this to them just two or three days prior to this moment that we're reading this morning. So these two ladies go to the tomb. And they, along with the other disciples, had forgotten the words of Jesus. So let me just remind you this morning that if you've perhaps lost your way or maybe forgotten the words of Jesus, you're in good company. 
These were people who were with Jesus and Jesus had reminded them of these things and yet they are there acting as though he's in the tomb and he's dead. Even though he told them all of these things on repeated occasions. So verse two, behold, there was an earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So their concern as they were coming to the tomb was who's gonna roll the stone back so we can get in there and do the proper preparation for his burial. But as God usually does, he had already taken care of it. God had already thought of every contingency. And he had rolled that stone away. And and if you've heard this well-worn statement, let me say it to you again. The stone was not rolled back to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away so that all people could see for themselves that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was resurrected. The angel rolled the stone away, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in, to let them in. And we are told that the appearance of this angel, uh, one of the gospels says he was sitting on top of the stone. Another gospel says there was two angels there. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Remember, as we were closing out last week, After he had been buried and the stone had been rolled in front of the tomb, some people had gone to one of the leaders and they said, hey, look, we are fearful that his disciples are going to come and steal him away because that, that crook and that robber, that liar said he was going to raise from the dead. So lest his disciples come and steal his body, we should set a guard over the tomb. And, and they said, go and make it as secure as you know how you've been given a guard. So these guards were there. And the angel came and it says the guards trembled and became like dead men. So apparently they were still there, you know, sort of frozen. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. So they come expecting to find a dead Messiah. And as they come, instead they find this amazing scene, the angel sitting there on the tomb, giving them the good news that he's not here. And the enemies of God neutralized as they are standing there, probably literally shaking in their boots. They're they're paralyzed with fear. And he says to them as they come, as angels almost always say when they appear to human beings, fear not, do not be afraid. And he says, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, he's risen. And all four gospels record this, don't they? They all record almost exactly the same thing here that, you know, he's not here, he's risen. And notice what he says here. Matthew records the account uniquely for us in this way in verse six and seven. He says, come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples. I want you to think about that, and that's what I've called the message this morning. Come and see and go and tell. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples. When we see the place where they laid him, we see that the Father did not forsake Jesus. He kept his promise When we see the place where they laid Jesus, we see that death is conquered because Jesus was resurrected. We'll talk about that in a moment further. When we see the place where they laid him, we see that we have a living friend in Jesus. He's not dead. He's alive. And let me remind you this morning, in case you've never heard this, that every other religious leader, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, you name it, they're dead. Jesus is not. He is the only one who is alive because he is the Lord. Everything he said he did, he was resurrected. And because he was resurrected, that authenticates everything that he said. In verse 7, when he said, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. In other words, remind them what he already said. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now, to put some context and perspective, right, they're in Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem's that sort of south of Galilee. Galilee, as you go north on the Jordan River Valley, if you have a Bible, just look at the maps in the back. About 80 or so miles north of Jerusalem, straight north, is the region of Galilee. And of course, Jesus spent much time ministering in and around Galilee. He would come down and uh, minister in Jerusalem and then go back up to Galilee. Well, keep in mind, they had to walk, right? It was reported in those days that the average human would walk about 20 20 miles in a day. So to travel back up north to Galilee would take them easily four days, maybe less if they were on a good pace. And so even from that point on Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, for them to to get to believe it and get together and head back up north was going to take them till Wednesday or Thursday to get there, right? And so we know from the other gospel accounts, Luke most notably, that uh, later on that same day on, on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week, that the disciples on the road to Emmaus, a little city that was about seven or so miles away from Jerusalem, Jesus met those two disciples on the road who were going home from Jerusalem. And you remember the story there as he met them, they didn't know who he was. And he went to their house, they invited him in. He shared a meal with them. And as he reached out to break the bread, they likely saw his sleeve right up and they saw the nail prints in his wrist and they realized it was the Lord And then Jesus was taken from their presence and they immediately got up and ran all the way back to Jerusalem. And as they were running back, they said, while we were walking with him on the road, did not our hearts burn within us as Jesus spoke to us? And then as they got back to the upper room where the disciples still were in Jerusalem, even after the ladies and and other people had bore witness to them and Peter and John had run to the the, uh, tomb and seen where Jesus had been laying. They were there together marveling. And these two disciples on the road to to Emmaus get back there. And then, of course, Jesus appears to them. So he appears to them in Jerusalem. But then a few days later, he appears to them up in Galilee. So these ladies go and they tell Jesus, uh, tell the disciples that Jesus is alive and that uh, what the angel had told them. And he says, there you will see him. See, I have told you. One person has said, and they're thinking about the cross, that the cross was the payment and the resurrection was the receipt, proving that the payment was fully accepted. That God was happy with what happened in the crucifixion of Jesus. I've mentioned to you before uh, last week, and I mentioned to you again today, Isaiah chapter 53. It is one of the most... uh, detailed and poignant prophecies talking about what would happen to the Messiah when he died. Jesus went through every process, every step, every word of Isaiah 53. The cross was the payment. The significance of the resurrection can probably be explained in many, many ways. But the resurrection proves that Jesus is God's son. One scripture that we can go to that talks to us about that is in John chapter 10, where Jesus said, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Who speaks like that of their death? I'm going to lay my life down and then I will pick it up again. You know, we know when we die or when someone we know dies that they die. And that they're, they're, if they know the Lord, their soul goes to be in the presence of the Lord, but their body goes into the grave. And the scriptures tell us that one day we'll, we will be given a resurrection body when the Lord himself reunites our soul and our spirit with our body. But in Jesus' case, Jesus laid down his own life. He says in, again in John ten eighteen, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. The resurrection proves that Jesus was God's Son. The resurrection also verifies the truth of Scripture. Again, many places we could go, but two in the Psalms that prophesy of the Messiah. Psalm 16, verse 10 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. This is the Messiah speaking to the Father. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus wasn't in the grave long enough for his body to decay. Psalm 110, verse 1, a psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my, your footstool. 
that when Jesus had resurrected and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he was fulfilling Psalm 110. And again, there's many, many other places we could go, but it verifies, the resurrection verifies the truth of Scripture. The resurrection also assures us of our own future resurrection. There's a lot of scriptures here. I'll mention two to you. One in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what we call the rapture passage. And in that passage, it says in verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. 1 Corinthians 15, I could commend really the whole chapter to you, but in, in one of the earlier sections, verses 13 through 23, it talks about how God raised up Christ, and it says, uh, if he, in fact, he, uh, he, did, he didn't raise up Christ, and if, in fact, the dead do not rise, then we are the most pitiable of all men because we have believed a lie. And then he goes on to say, but we are not that. God did raise Christ, and because of that, we have hope. And he calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. And that he became a type and a down payment for us that we also would be resurrected. And so the resurrection also testifies of our own future resurrection. The resurrection is also a proof of a future judgment, that there is a judgment coming. But for those who are in Christ, there is no judgment Our sin has been judged on the cross of Christ. Acts chapter 17 tells us this. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, capital M, Jesus, whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this, of this to all by raising him from the dead. There will, there will be a judgment. There's two judgments. There's one called the Bema Seat of Christ we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that says for believers we will appear before the seat of Christ to receive our rewards. In other words, we will not be judged for our sin. We will be welcomed in as being under the blood of the resurrected Christ. But then in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment there is a time when every unbelieving human being will appear before the throne of God. And the basis of that judgment will essentially be, what have you done with my son? And if you are not found in Christ, you will be at that judgment. If you are found in Christ, you will be at the Bema seat of Christ to receive rewards. We also find that the resurrection is the basis for the heavenly priesthood of Jesus that's spoken to us In Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews 7, as the author of the book of Hebrews is writing, he's talking about the ministry of the priests in the temple, and then he compares that ministry to the ministry of Jesus and calls Jesus the high priest. And it says, But he, that is Jesus, because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. He does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus became our high priest. He was the only one who could do what he did. He does not have to offer up sacrifices for his own sins because he was the sinless son of God. The resurrection gives us power for living as believers in Christ. In Romans chapter 6, do you not know that as many of us 
As we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we certainly shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. God gives us power to live because of the resurrection of Jesus. Final point in this section, the resurrection of Jesus assures us of our future inheritance. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The resurrection of Jesus assures us of our future inheritance, of our future condition and appearance before God himself. Back to our story this morning, Matthew 28, verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. So they were obedient to the word of the angel. And as they were running back to go tell the disciples and to do exactly what the angel said, they ran right into Jesus, verse 9. Behold, Jesus met them, and he said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I can't imagine what that must have been like. You know, when we read the scriptures, we should try to think of ourselves being in the story, of us being in the place of the people that are being spoke of, in this case, of these ladies who so faithfully went out on that morning in disbelief to see the Lord and to prepare his body for burial, but then they, they, they meet the angel, they discover with, with great joy and consternation all at the same time that Jesus is not there. The angel telling them he's been resurrected and then they run into Jesus himself and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. I submit to you this morning that if it had been us, if we had run into the risen Lord, if we had been with him for those three years and we had run into him in that moment thinking he was dead and, and, and you know our minds sort of having forgotten all those things that he had spoken to us, that we would have done the same thing. We would have fallen down at his feet and that we would have worshiped him. And I ask you this, why should it be any different today when we come into his presence, when we open his word and we read it and we say, Lord, speak to me, or we come to a corporate time of worship and gathering together, why should it be any different? Shouldn't we fall as it were at his feet and worship him? And what does Jesus say to these dear ladies? He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. So they are told, just as the angel said, you know, come and see and go and tell. You see, that seems to be what Jesus is always saying to people, isn't it? Come and see and go and tell. You see, the good news of the gospel, our understanding of the truth, our experience with the Lord Jesus is not meant to be kept to ourselves. It is to be shared with others. It's to be shared with the assembly, with the congregation. But it's also to be shared with those who do not yet know him. As we continue on in verse 11, we come to this section where uh, Matthew includes this report of the guard and what happened. And that they, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Now remember, Pilate had given some of the guard to the temple priests. So they were essentially delegated or loaned out to the temple precinct. And so they went and reported to the chief priests as opposed to Pilate. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. So they were essentially bought off and told to lie and said, tell, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. 
In other words, we'll be your alibi, we'll come to bat for you. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And notice what Matthew says, and I forget the date that he had written this, but of course, as many, many years later. And he says, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And he writes this almost with just incredulity, just looking at it saying, wow, even after all these years, they're still telling this story. That, that Jesus didn't, didn't resurrect from the dead, that his body was stolen. But let me point out something here that we may miss because we don't understand the culture and the times. This issue, this story of his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. First of all, we, are, we have to believe that all of the soldiers were asleep. The normal pattern would have been that there was always a, a guard who was on watch, who was on call. One may sleep, another may be awake. There was also the understanding that the soldiers were under oath of law that they were not allowed to sleep while on duty. And if they did fall asleep while on duty, they were subject to severe punishment, most likely physical death. So they were to uphold their duty with great integrity. And to think that all of the soldiers, who, however many there were, may have slept so soundly that none of them would have heard a group of fearful disciples come and struggle with a 4,000-pound stone in the middle of the night or early morning. And, and, you know, when you're moving something heavy, don't you make noise? Don't you grunt? Have you ever been to the gym and heard those guys lifting weight? Yeah! And they scream when they're moving the heavy weights. You can't do that quietly. And they were going to sleep through that? This little band of ragtag disciples moving a 4,000-pound stone? I think not. And yet, it says that they were asleep, but somehow they know who did it. Because they were asleep, right? They said, we were asleep, and his disciples must have come and stolen the body. Well, how do you know if you were asleep? Who, who was it? These stories don't make sense, but yet they were paid, and people believed it. People will believe a lie simply because someone speaks with authority. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, verse 16, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. So this is some days later, probably Thursday or Friday of that same week, most likely. And it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. One commentator said this about this issue of being doubted or doubtful, that this word could also be translated as hesitated, meaning they were like, "Is is that really you, Jesus? I mean... Is that really you? I hadn't, some of them hadn't seen him yet. And so as they come and they see the Lord Jesus and, and their fears are, go away and their doubts are answered, Jesus begins to speak in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, excuse me, all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Many of us are very familiar with this, aren't we? We know it as the Great Commission, that's what we call it. When Jesus came, notice he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you know anybody like that who has all authority in heaven and on earth? All authority in heaven and on earth? Jesus said it had been given to him. And by saying this, Jesus, of course, can send whomever he wills to do whatever he wishes, can't he? See, we need to understand this about Jesus. If we say we've been saved, if we say we know him, if we say we love him, you see, we all want him to be our savior, but few of us want him to be our master, our Lord. If Jesus is our Lord and if he truly has this authority, and if we have willingly brought ourselves under his authority, then we have to obey what he says, don't we? Or it calls our love and our fidelity into question, doesn't it? Do you really love him? I mean, didn't Jesus himself say, 
Many people call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I say. You don't do what I do. Jesus commissions these disciples. He says, essentially, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And by saying, go, therefore, he's saying, I'm giving that authority to you. I want you to go with my authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you're the kind of person who writes in your Bible this morning, I'd like to encourage you, beginning in verse 18, every time you see the word all, circle it. There's all authority in verse 18, all nations in verse 19, verse 20, all that I have commanded and I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see, Jesus is not speaking in some local way that only applies to the few people who were standing there who heard him on that day. He's telling them to do this that would, that would leave a posterity and a heritage for all the ages. And thus, when we see these words, these words are also being spoken to us because again, as we, we as his disciples, think about this, if we have been saved... However you got saved, however you became born again, however the Spirit of God and the Word of God spoke to you, in that moment when you gave your heart to the Lord and you asked Him in, however you want to say it, when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you belong to Him. You're like one of these disciples. We are one of these disciples, all of us. So he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, he didn't just tell those 12 or those 20 or those 100, however many were there. He's telling it to us. These words were not just spoken to a few people, or today they're not just spoken to a few people whom we might call a missionary or a pastor. He's speaking this to all disciples. You see, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. And a disciple means a learner and a follower. And he's telling them and he's telling us, go, make disciples of all nations. You see, go doesn't mean you have to sell everything and go to a foreign country, does it? Some are called to do that. But as you go, the language would be more correctly termed if we understood the tenses. While you were going, make disciples of the nations. You see, we all, you know, we have responsibilities in life. We have jobs. We make a living. You know, we have homes to care for and kids to raise and mouths to feed and all of those things, don't we? But what trumps and supersedes all of those things is that we belong to Jesus. And he tells us as his disciples, as you go, and this is really consistent with scripture because all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, Jesus, I mean, the Lord spoke to the children of Israel and he says, as you go about life and you bring your kids with you and as you rise up and as you lay down and as you walk along the path, you live the life, you do the things God told you to do, you be the person God told you to be. As you go, as you live life. And so he's really taking what came out of Deuteronomy and restating it here. And he's saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All nations, all, all over the world. This is something the church should do. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When it says the name, the word name there is singular. Not the names, as in the name of the Father, and then the name of the Son, and then the name of the Holy Spirit, but the name being singular because God is one, isn't he? The Shema from the Old Testament, Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. While you are going, make disciples of all nations. What is a disciple, an apprentice, a learner? What are we supposed to be when we come to Christ, apprentices and learners? And so when we come to Christ, forget your physical age for a moment. Spiritually speaking, when you're born again, when you come to Christ and you begin to learn and you read the word of God and hopefully you're, you're getting discipled by someone, by a church, by a small group Bible study. And by the way, 
That's why we have all these Bible studies. Not because we're doing the church thing and turning the crank, but because we, we need to be discipled. And as we are discipled and as we are filled up, then we go out and we disciple others. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and he says to Timothy, you're a faithful man, Timothy, and I want you to go find faithful men and teach them also. And it's the same thing that Jesus said here. He's just saying it in a different way. So you see, we look at ourselves, don't we? We go, well, you know, I'm not really a teacher. I'm not really a people person. I don't really do that kind of a thing. doesn't matter. Jesus said, do it. See, we're disciples, and we're supposed to make disciples. You see, making disciples is not for a select few who have certain gifts. It's for all of us. Sharing the good news of Christ is not for someone who's been given the gift of evangelism. It's for all of us. You see, most of us have no difficulty, and I guarantee every one of us have done this, when we've come across a good deal, and we're like, hey, gas is 30 cents less over here at the gas station on the corner, right? And we do that. Or meat's on sale over here. Or there's some crazy deal over here where something that's normally this amount of money is 50% off. If you go over there today, you can get the deal. We do this all the time. Is there a better deal than being forgiven from your sins and not going to hell? See, we need to recalibrate ourselves. If we're born again, if we belong to Jesus, then we have to listen to him. But you see, it's not a weight. It's not a burden. It's not meant to be. We do it because our hearts are full. We do it because we realize how much we've been forgiven. Jesus did this all, th- all throughout the scriptures as he was with the disciples. Remember, Uh, The woman who came in to him as he was sitting in the Pharisee's house and she was crying at his feet and she was pouring perfume on his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. And the, the Pharisees were sitting there looking at this event happening right in front of them. And they were going, if this man knew who this woman was, I mean, he wouldn't allow her to even touch him. And Jesus tells them the little story, right? A parable about someone being forgiven, Two people being forgiven, then he says to the master of the house there, the Pharisee, he says, which one was more grateful? And he says, well, I suppose it was the one who was forgiven more. And he says, you see this woman here? Since she came in, she has not ceased to wash my feet with her tears and to, and, and to wipe my feet with her hair. But when I came in, you didn't even offer me the common courtesy in that day of washing my feet. And he said, she has been forgiven much and she loves much. Do you realize how much you've been forgiven? Are you here in church? Are you in Christ because you're a good moral person and the rest of the world is evil? Or are you here because God in his gracious love and mercy saved you from the flames of hell and he's delivered you? Is this not the best deal ever? You see, when we tell others, it's because we have a desire to spread good news about something, that there's joy. There's a message we need to get out. What is that message? Let me just say to you, if that message is not, I found the best deal ever, we need to go back into our prayer closet and get on our knees before the Lord. And I'm serious this morning with our Bibles open and say, Lord, change me. Help me to realize, you know, I need to, I've become so polluted by the world. I was sharing with you guys a few weeks ago a statistic I read recently, and, and it, I saw it refreshed this week, that the average person touches their phone 2,500 times in a day. And that counts all the touches and all the swipes. I, I saw another, a refresh of that statistic from a different angle, that the average person, again, keeping in mind average, spends three and a half to four hours a day on their phone or on some electronic device, a phone, a tablet, an iPad, whatever it might be. Think about how that shifted. Think about 50 years ago, 25 years ago. That, this stuff didn't even exist. But now these things have become the biggest distraction in our lives. And they've taken us away from the Lord. One prominent leader that I follow on Twitter had tweeted and said, when he read this statistic about you know, spending you know, three and a half hours or, or so a day on 
their device, he said, you know, I sat down and I calculated and, and I just looked and I said, if I spent three and a half hours a day reading my Bible, I'd read through my Bible like three times a year. Just to give you perspective, not to incite guilt, but to help us recalibrate and understand this morning that if, if the best thing that's ever happened to us is the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ and our sins being forgiven, then it ought to mean something to us. So when our Lord says to us, go and tell, that shouldn't strike fear in our hearts. It should, it should be like, okay, Lord, you said go, so I'm going to go. How am I going to go? I'm going to go in your power. I'm going to go in your strength. And I will do what you said. Listen to this. I read this from Warren Wearsby, and if you want it, I can send it to you. In many respects today, speaking of the church today, in many respects, we have departed from this pattern of making disciples. In most churches, the congregation pays the pastor to preach, to win the lost, and to build up the saved, while the church members function as cheerleaders if they are enthusiastic, or as spectators. The converts, quote, are one, they're baptized and given the right hand of fellowship, then they join the other spectators. How much more our churches would grow and how much stronger and joyful our church members would be if each were discipling another believer. The only way a local church can be fruitful and multiply, instead of growing by addition, is through systematic discipleship. This is the responsibility of every believer and not just a small group that has been called to go or paid to do. Wow. Isn't that where we are today in the church at large? People do that. And when people church shop, because this is a real thing, right? People church shop. And, I, and we've seen it. People come through. Uh, here's all the things I'm looking for. Do you have this for my kids? And do you have this for my uh, middle schools? Do you have this, my teenagers? Do you have this for our college kids? Uh, do you do these activities? Do you have a men's golf league? You know, right, blah, 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 blah. They check all these things. And if you don't have that stuff, they're out, they're on, they're on to find the church that offers that stuff. Folks, if that's what church has become, when we read the scriptures here, when we read Matthew uh, you know, 28, 18 through 20, this is, this is the church. This is what Jesus called us to. And he says, as we go, he says, we're to baptize. You see, you don't have to be ordained to baptize. You can baptize people. If you know the Lord, you can baptize people. If you know the Lord, you can serve communion to people. You can open the scriptures as we're going to do in a few minutes and read the passages that talk about the Lord's table and lead a group of people. You, any man or woman can do that. Any man or woman can baptize it's not given to one person. It's not given just to a pastor to do. He says, if you're my disciple, you can do these things. I've probably told this story before, but when I was in college, um, this freshman, freshman or sophomore year, I don't remember, I was home for the summer, and I had come back to the Lord in my freshman year in college as I had walked away from him for many years through high school and whatnot. And I was a part of this sort of college age group for the summer through my local church. And there was a, a couple leading this, a husband and the wife. And it was mostly the wife. The husband was always busy working. So she was leading this group. So we would meet during the week for prayer and Bible study. Then on the weekends, sometimes we'd do things like go for hikes or whatever. And so while we were doing all that, I was reading my Bible devotionally through the summer. I had a summer job and all that. So I went to her. As we were going through the summer, and I had been reading, I don't know if it was this passage or maybe one of the other passages on the Lord's table, and I said to her, I said, you know, we've got like, you know, 10 of us there. She said, what a cool thing. I mean, we're having this great summer. We're fellowshipping together. Um, maybe, you know, can, can we take communion together? Wouldn't that be cool? And she was like, well, I, I, I don't know if you can do that. I mean, I got to go talk to the pastor and find out if we can do that. So she went away, and the next week we gathered, she came together. She said, well, the pastor said we can't do that unless he's there. And, and I looked at her, and I just said, well, okay. But I, I scratched my head and walked away from that like, I don't know. It's not what I read in here. I didn't see anywhere that said an ordained pastor has to administer communion to you. Right? It doesn't say that. We have to question these things, don't we? 
Listen, we need to understand Jesus is speaking this to his disciples. If you're a disciple, you can do these things. And you should be doing these things. I should be doing these things. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How does the word of God get out? We get it out. All of us. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, Jesus is with you. He's with you. Not just to bring comfort when you are feeling afraid or sad. He's with you to empower you to do the things that he said he wants to do. He didn't leave us as orphans. Didn't he say this in the upper room in the Gospel of John? John 13 through 17. I will be with you, my spirit. I'm giving my spirit to you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When is the end of the age? I think for us as as, uh, believers, in, in the point of time we're living now, it's the rapture of the church. But even if you extend the end of the age to the end of the time of the tribulation, he still said he would be with you. He's not with a select few. He's with everyone who is his disciple. If you know Jesus, he is with you. In comparing the Great Commission with Jesus' promise to continually build his church, we must conclude that he intended his church always to be spiritually militant and evangelistically aggressive as we take his claims of lordship to the entire world of our generation. Spurgeon said, We should never tolerate low thoughts of him, that is of Jesus. You may study and look and meditate But Jesus is a greater Savior than you think him to be, even when your thoughts are at their highest. He can do with any life in this room or with any life listening this morning, he can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. Can't he? And, you know, I just hope one day to, to skid into the throne room of heaven, get under the door before it closes in the back of the room and just to be there. You know, when nobody, we're, this is not a competition, right? This isn't like a concert. I paid extra money to get the seats down front. We just want to be in the presence of the Lord. And if you know him, if you're saved by him, praise God, you'll be there. But also, in the meantime, Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, and I like the King James where he rendered, he, Jesus says, occupy till I come. That's what we're to do. That's what the Great Commission's all about. The Great Commission is for the church. The Great Commission is for every single person who believes in Christ. Because if you're a disciple, then that's for you. And it's for me. Amen? Lord, as we come to the table this morning... We want to, as we have been told here, come and see and go and tell. So Lord, empower us, speak to us, show us this morning how we can take this seriously, how we can be your sons and daughters and not just spectators on the side. Lord, help us to take this life in Christ seriously. This morning, Lord, for all of us who have been born again, we rejoice and we praise you that our names are written in the book of life. And Lord, we pray that we would take these things quite seriously and literally. Lord, for those this morning who are listening who just may be unsure, they don't know if they've ever trusted you, if their sins have been forgiven, and if one day they'll stand before your throne and and be covered by the blood of the Lamb, then then in this moment, before we come to the table, I pray, Lord, that their hearts would soften and they would just reach out to you and just invite you into their lives and repent and turn from whatever path they're on and turn to you, Lord. Give their hearts to you. Walk with you, walk toward you. And Lord, on the one hand, this is not rocket science. On the other hand, the hardest thing is to be simple and to be humble, and to just surrender. So in this moment, Lord, for all of us, I pray that this would become sort of a moment of surrender for us. 
And as we now go back to our own prayer closets and we say, Lord, so now what do I do? How do I do it? How do I surrender to you? How do I, as I go, make disciples? We think about all the things we've heard over the years, Lord, to know you and to make you known, to win, to build, to send. These are all just ways of saying what you said. And who needs to say it? Who can say it better than you, Jesus? <laughs> go and make disciples. So Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we're going to sing a song. We're going to remember. We're going to refresh ourselves. We're going to hit reset. And we're going to just love on you because you've loved on us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.